1. Introduction In a previous paper, various propositions were presented which would have to be included in any theory of human motivation that could lay claim to being definitive. These conclusions may be briefly summarized as follows. 1. The integrated wholeness of the organism must be one of the foundation stones of motivation theory. 2. The hunger drive or any other physiological drive was rejected as a centering point or model for a definitive theory of motivation. Any drive that's somatically based and localizable was shown to be atypical rather than typical in human motivation. 3. Such a theory should stress and center itself upon ultimate or basic goals rather than partial or superficial ones upon ends rather than means to these ends. Such a stress would imply a more central place for unconscious than conscious motivations. 4. There are usually available various cultural paths to the same goal. Therefore, conscious, specific, local cultural desires are not as fundamental in motivation theory as the more basic unconscious goals. 5. Any motivated behavior, either preparatory or consumatory, must be understood to be a channel through which many basic needs may be simultaneously expressed or satisfied. Typically, an act has more than one motivation. 6. Practically all organismic states are to be understood as motivated and as motivating. 7. Human needs arrange themselves in hierarchies of propotency. That is to say, the appearance of one need usually rests on the prior satisfaction of another, more prepotent need. Man is a perpetually wanting animal. Also, no need or drive can be treated as if it were isolated or discrete. Every drive is related to the state of satisfaction or dissatisfaction of other drives. 8. Lists of drives will get us nowhere for various theoretical and practical reasons. Furthermore, any classification of motivations must deal with the problem of levels of specificity or generalization of the motives to be classified. 9. Classifications of motivations must be based upon goals rather than upon instigating drives or motivated behavior. 10. Motivation theory should be human-centered rather than animal-centered. 11. The situation or the field in which the organism reacts must be taken into account, but the field alone can rarely serve as an exclusive explanation for behavior. Furthermore, the field itself must be interpreted in terms of the organism. Field theory cannot be a substitute for motivation theory. 12. Not only the integration of the organism must be taken into account, but also the possibility of isolated, specific, partial, or segmental reactions. It has since become necessary to add to these another affirmation. 13. Motivations theory is not synonymous with behavior theory. The motivations are only one class of determinants of behavior. While behavior is almost always motivated, it is also almost always biologically, culturally, and situationally determined as well. The present paper is an attempt to formulate a positive theory of motivation which will satisfy these theoretical demands and at the same time conform to the known facts, clinical and observational, as well as experimental. It derives most directly, however, from clinical experience. This theory is, I think, in the functionalist tradition of James and Dewey and is fused with the holism of Wertheimer, Goldstein, and Gestalt psychology, and with the dynamicism of Freud and Adler. This fusion or synthesis may arbitrarily be called a general dynamic theory. 
it is far easier to perceive and to criticize the aspects in motivation theory than to remedy them. Mostly this is because of the very serious lack of sound data in this area. I conceive this lack of sound facts to be due primarily to the absence of a valid theory of motivation. The present theory then must be considered to be a suggested program or framework for future research and must stand or fall not so much on facts available or evidence presented as upon researches yet to be done, researches suggested perhaps by the questions raised in this paper. Two, the basic needs. The physiological needs, the needs that are usually taken as the starting point for motivation theory are the so-called physiological drives. Two recent lines of research make it necessary to revise our customary notions about these needs. First, the development of the concept of homeostasis, and second, the finding that appetites, preferential choices among foods, are a fairly efficient indication of actual needs or lacks in the body. Homeostasis refers to the body's automatic efforts to maintain a constant normal state of the bloodstream. Cannon has described this process for 1. The water content of the blood, 2. Salt content, 3. Sugar content, 4. Protein content, 5. Fat content, 6. Calcium content, 7. Oxygen content, 8. Constant hydrogen ion level, acid-base balance, and 9. Constant temperature of the blood. Obviously, this list can be extended to include other minerals, the hormones, vitamins, etc. Young, in a recent article, has summarized the work on appetite in its relation to body needs. If the body lacks some chemical, the individual will tend to develop a specific appetite or partial hunger for that food element. Thus, it seems impossible as well as useless to make any list of fundamental physiological needs, for they can come to almost any number one might wish, depending on the degree of specificity of description. We cannot identify all physiological needs as homeostatic. That sexual desire, sleepiness, sheer activity and maternal behavior in animals are homeostatic has not yet been demonstrated. Furthermore, this list would not include the various sensory pleasures, tastes, smells, tickling, stroking, which are probably physiological and which may become the goals of motivated behavior. In a previous paper, it has been pointed out that these physiological drives or needs are to be considered unusual rather than typical because they are isolable and because they are localizable somatically. That is to say, they are relatively independent of each other, of other motivations, and of the organism as a whole. And secondly, in many cases, it's possible to demonstrate a localized underlying somatic base for the drive. This is true less generally than has been thought. Exceptions are fatigue. This is true less generally than has been thought. Exceptions are fatigue, sleepiness, maternal responses but it is still true in the classic instances of hunger, sex, and thirst. It should be pointed out again that any of the physiological needs and the consumatory behavior involved with them serve as channels for all sorts of other needs as well. That is to say, the person who thinks he is hungry may actually be seeking more for comfort or dependence than for vitamins or proteins. Conversely, it's possible to satisfy the hunger need in part by other activities such as drinking water or smoking cigarettes. In other words, relatively isolable as these physiological needs are, they are not completely so. 
Undoubtedly, these physiological needs are the most preponent of all needs. What this means specifically is that in the human being who is missing everything in life in an extreme fashion, it is most likely that the major motivation would be the physiological needs rather than any others. A person who is lacking food, safety, love, and esteem would most probably hunger for food more strongly than for anything else. If all the needs are unsatisfied and the organism is then dominated by the physiological needs, all other needs may become simply non-existent or be pushed into the background. It is then fair to characterize the whole organism by saying simply that it is hungry for consciousness is almost completely preempted by hunger. All capacities are put into the service of hunger satisfaction and the organization of these capacities is almost entirely determined by the one purpose of satisfying hunger. The receptors and effectors, the intelligence, memory, habits, all may now be defined simply as hunger-gratifying tools. Capacities that are not useful for this purpose lie dormant or are pushed into the background. The urge to write poetry, the desire to acquire an automobile, the interest in American history, the desire for a new pair of shoes are, in the extreme case, forgotten or become of secondary importance. For the man who is extremely and dangerously hungry, no other interests exist but food. He dreams food, he remembers food, he thinks about food, he emotes only about food, he perceives only food, and he wants only food. The more subtle determinants that ordinarily fuse with the physiological drives in organizing even feeding, drinking, or sexual behavior may now be so completely overwhelmed as to allow us to speak at this time, but only at this time, of pure hunger drive and behavior with the one unqualified aim of relief. Another peculiar characteristic of the human organism when it is dominated by a certain need is that the whole philosophy of the future tends also to change. For our chronically and extremely hungry man, utopia can be defined very simply as a place where there is plenty of food. He tends to think that if only he's guaranteed food for the rest of his life, he will be perfectly happy and will never want anything more. Life itself tends to be defined in terms of eating. Anything else will be defined as unimportant. Freedom, love, community, feeling, respect, philosophy may all be waved aside as fripperies which are useless since they fail to fill the stomach. Such a man may fairly be said to live by bread alone. It cannot possibly be denied that such things are true, but their generality can be denied. Emergency conditions are almost by definition rare in the normally functioning peaceful society. That this truism can be forgotten is due mainly to two reasons. First, rats have few motivations other than physiological ones, and since so much of the research upon motivation has been made with these animals, it is easy to carry the rat picture over to the human being. Secondly, it's too often not realized that culture itself is an adaptive tool, one of whose main functions is to make the physiological emergencies come less and less often. In most of the known societies, chronic extreme hunger of the emergency type is rare rather than common. In any case, this is still true in the United States. The average American citizen is experiencing appetite rather than hunger when he says, I am hungry. He is apt to experience sheer life and death hunger only by accident and then only a few times through his entire life. Obviously a good way to obscure the higher motivations and to get a lopsided view of human capacities and human nature is to make the organism extremely and chronically hungry or thirsty. 
anyone who attempts to make an emergency picture into a typical one and who will measure all of man's goals and desires by his behavior during extreme physiological deprivation is certainly being blind to many things. It is quite true that man lives by bread alone when there is no bread, but what happens to man's desires when there is plenty of bread and when his belly is chronically filled? At once, other and higher needs emerge and these, rather than physiological hungers, dominate the organism. And when these in turn are satisfied, again new and still higher needs emerge and so on. This is what we mean by saying that the basic human needs are organized into a hierarchy of relative propotency. One main implication of this phrasing is that gratification becomes as important a concept as deprivation in motivation theory, or it releases the organism from the domination of a relatively more physiological need, permitting thereby the emergence of other more social goals. The physiological needs, along with their partial goals when chronically gratified, cease to exist as active determinants or organizers of behavior. They now exist only in a potential fashion in the sense that they may emerge again to dominate the organism if they are thwarted. But a want that is satisfied is no longer a want. The organism is dominated and its behavior organized only by unsatisfied needs. If hunger is satisfied, it becomes unimportant in the current dynamics of the individual. This statement is somewhat qualified by a hypothesis to be discussed more fully later, namely that it is precisely those individuals in whom a certain need has always been satisfied who are best equipped to tolerate deprivation of that need in the future, and that furthermore those who have been deprived in the past will react differently to current satisfactions than the one who has never been deprived. The Safety Needs If the physiological needs are relatively well gratified, there then emerges a new set of needs, which we may categorize roughly as the safety needs. All that has been said of the physiological needs is equally true, although in lesser degree, of these desires. The organism may equally well be wholly dominated by them. They may serve as the almost exclusive organizers of behavior, recruiting all the capacities of the organism in their service, and we may then fairly describe the whole organism as a safety-seeking mechanism. Again, we may say of the receptors, the effectors, of the intellect and the other capacities that they are primarily safety-seeking tools. Again, as in the hungry man, we find that the dominating goal is a strong determinant not only of his current world outlook and philosophy, but also of his philosophy of the future. Again, as in the hungry man, we find that the dominating goal is a strong determinant not only of his current world outlook and philosophy, but also of his philosophy of the future. Practically everything looks less important than safety, even sometimes the physiological needs, which being satisfied, are now underestimated. A man in this state, if it is extreme enough and chronic enough, may be characterized as living almost for safety alone. Although in this paper we're interested primarily in the needs of the adult, we can approach an understanding of his safety needs perhaps more efficiently by observation of infants and children in whom these needs are much more simple and obvious. One reason for the clear appearance of the threat or danger reaction in infants is that they do not inhibit this reaction at all, whereas adults in our society have been taught to inhibit it at all costs. Thus, even when adults do feel their safety to be threatened, we may not be able to see this on the surface. 
infants will react in a total fashion and as if they were endangered if they are disturbed or dropped suddenly, startled by loud noises, flashing light, or other unusual sensory stimulation, by rough handling, by general loss of support in the mother's arms, or by inadequate support. In infants, we can also see a much more direct reaction to bodily illnesses of various kinds. Sometimes these illnesses seem to be immediately and per se threatening and seem to make the child feel unsafe. For instance, vomiting, colic, or other sharp pains seem to make the child look at the whole world in a different way. At such a moment of pain, it may be postulated that for the child, the appearance of the whole world suddenly changes from sunniness to darkness, so to speak, and becomes a place in which anything at all might happen, in which previously stable things have suddenly become unstable. Thus, a child who because of some bad food is taken ill may, for a day or two, develop fear, nightmares, and a need for protection and reassurance never seen in him before his illness. Another indication of the child's need for safety is his preference for some kind of undisrupted routine or rhythm. He seems to want a predictable, orderly world. For instance, injustice, unfairness, or inconsistency in the parents seems to make a child feel anxious and unsafe. This attitude may be not so much because of the injustice per se or any particular pains involved, but rather because this treatment threatens to make the world look unreliable or unsafe or unpredictable. Young children seem to thrive better under a system which has at least a skeletal outline of rigidity, in which there is a schedule of a kind, some sort of routine, something that can be counted upon, not only for the present, but also far into the future. Perhaps one could express this more accurately by saying that the child needs an organized world rather than an unorganized or unstructured one. The central role of the parents in the normal family setup are indisputable. Quarreling, physical assault, separation, divorce or death within the family may be particularly terrifying. Also, parental outbursts of rage or threats of punishment directed to the child, calling him names, speaking to him harshly, shaking him, handling him roughly, or actual physical punishment sometimes elicits such total panic and terror in the child that we must assume more is involved than the physical pain alone. While it is true that in some children this terror may represent also a fear of loss of parental love, it can also occur in completely rejected children who seem to cling to the hating parents more for sheer safety and protection than because of hope and love. While it is true that in some children this terror may represent also a fear of loss of parental love, it can also occur in completely rejected children who seem to cling to the hating parents more for sheer safety and protection than because of hope of love. Confronting the average child with new, unfamiliar, strange, unmanageable stimuli or situations will too frequently elicit the danger or terror reaction as, for example, getting lost or even being separated from the parents for a short time, being confronted with new faces, new situations, or new tasks, the sight of strange, unfamiliar, or uncontrollable objects, illness, or death. Particularly at such times, the child's frantic clinging to his parents is eloquent testimony to their role as protectors, quite apart from their roles as food givers and love givers. From these and similar observations, we may generalize and say that the average child in our society generally prefers a safe, orderly, predictable, organized world which he can count on, and in which unexpected, unmanageable, or other dangerous things 
do not happen, and in which, in any case, he has all-powerful parents who protect and shield him from harm. That these reactions may so easily be observed in children is, in a way, a proof of the fact that children in our society feel too unsafe or, in a word, are badly brought up. Children who are reared in an unthreatening, loving family do not ordinarily react as we have described above. In such children, the danger reactions are apt to come mostly to objects or situations that adults, too, would consider dangerous. The healthy, normal, fortunate adult in our culture is largely satisfied in his safety needs. The peaceful, smoothly running, good society ordinarily makes its members feel safe enough from wild animals, extremes of temperature, criminals, assault and murder, tyranny, etc. Therefore, in a very real sense, he no longer has any safety needs as active motivators. Just as a sated man no longer feels hungry, a safe man no longer feels endangered. If we wish to see these needs directly and clearly, we must turn to neurotic or near-neurotic individuals and to the economic and social underdogs. In between these extremes, we can perceive the expressions of safety needs only in such phenomena as, for instance, the common preference for a job with tenure and protection, the desire for a savings account, and for insurance of various kinds, medical, dental, unemployment, disability, old age. Other broader aspects of the attempt to seek safety and stability in the world are seen in the very common preference for familiar rather than unfamiliar things, or for the known rather than the unknown. The tendency to have some religion or world philosophy that organizes the universe and the men in it into some sort of satisfactorily coherent, meaningful whole is also in part motivated by safety-seeking. Here, too, we may list science and philosophy in general as partially motivated by the safety needs. We shall see later that there are also other motivations to scientific, philosophical, or religious endeavor. Otherwise, the need for safety is seen as an active and dominant mobilizer of the organism's resources only in emergencies. Examples given, war, disease, natural catastrophes, crime waves, societal disorganization, neurosis, brain injury, chronically bad situation. Some neurotic adults in our society are in many ways like the unsafe child in their desire for safety, although in the former, it takes on a somewhat special appearance. Their reaction is often to unknown psychological dangers in a world that's perceived to be hostile, overwhelming, and threatening. Such a person behaves as if a great catastrophe were almost always impending. In effect, he is usually responding as if to an emergency. His safety needs often find specific expression in a search for a protector or a stronger person on whom he may depend, or perhaps a furor. The neurotic individual may be described in a slightly different way with some usefulness as a grown-up person who retains his childish attitudes toward the world. That is to say, a neurotic adult may be said to behave as if he were actually afraid of a spanking or of his mother's disapproval or of being abandoned by his parents or having his food taken away from him. It is as if his childish attitudes of fear and threat reaction to a dangerous world had gone underground and untouched by the growing up and learning processes, were now ready to be called out by any stimulus that would make a child feel endangered and threatened. The neurosis in which the search for safety takes its clearest form is in the compulsive obsessive neurosis, Compulsive obsessives try frantically to order and stabilize the world so that no unmanageable, unexpected, or unfamiliar dangers will ever appear. 
They hedge themselves about with all sorts of ceremonials, rules, and formulas so that every possible contingency may be provided for and so that no new contingencies may appear. They are much like the brain-injured cases described by Goldstein, who managed to maintain their equilibrium by avoiding everything unfamiliar and strange and by ordering their restricted world in such a neat, disciplined, orderly fashion that everything in the world can be counted upon. They try to arrange the world so that anything unexpected, dangers, cannot possibly occur. If, through no fault of their own, something unexpected does occur, they go into a panic reaction as if this unexpected occurrence constituted a grave danger. What we can see only as a none-too-strong preference in the healthy person, example given, preference for the familiar, becomes a life-and-death necessity in abnormal cases. The Love Needs if both the physiological and the safety needs are fairly well gratified, then there will emerge the love and affection and belongingness needs, and the whole cycle already described will repeat itself with this new center. Now, the person will feel keenly, as never before, the absence of friends, or a sweetheart, or a wife, or children. He will hunger for affectionate relations with people in general, namely for a place in his group, and he will strive with great intensity to achieve this goal. He will want to attain such a place more than anything else in the world, and may even forget that once when he was hungry, he sneered at love. In our society, the thwarting of these needs is the most commonly found core in cases of maladjustment and more severe psychopathology. Love and affection as well as their possible expression in sexuality are generally looked upon with ambivalence and are customarily hedged about with many restrictions and inhibitions. Practically all theorists of psychopathology have stressed thwarting of the love needs as basic in the picture of maladjustment. Many clinical studies have therefore been made of this need and we know more about it perhaps than any of the other needs except the physiological ones. One thing that must be stressed at this point is that love is not synonymous with sex. Sex may be studied as a purely physiological need. Ordinarily, sexual behavior is multi-determined, that is to say, determined not only by sexual but also by other needs, chief among which are the love and affection needs. Also not to be overlooked is the fact that the love needs involve both giving and receiving love. The Esteem Needs all people in our society, with a few pathological exceptions, have a need or desire for a stable, firmly based, usually high evaluation of themselves, for self-respect or self-esteem, and for the esteem of others. By firmly based self-esteem, we mean that which is soundly based upon real capacity, achievement, and respect from others. These needs may be classified into two subsidiary sets. These are, first, the desire for strength, for achievement, for adequacy, for confidence in the face of the world, and for independence and freedom. Secondly, we have what we may call the desire for reputation or prestige, defining it as respect or esteem from other people, recognition, attention, importance, or appreciation. These needs have been relatively stressed by Alfred Adler and his followers and have been relatively neglected by Freud and the psychoanalysts. More and more today, however, there is appearing widespread appreciation of their central importance. Satisfaction of the self-esteem need leads to feelings of self-confidence, worth, strength, capability, and adequacy of being useful and necessary in the world. 
But thwarting of these needs produces feelings of inferiority, of weakness, and of helplessness. These feelings in turn give rise to either basic discouragement or else compensatory or neurotic trends. An appreciation of the necessity of basic self-confidence and an understanding of how helpless people are without it can be easily gained from a study of severe traumatic neurosis. The Need for Self-Actualization Even if all these needs are satisfied, we may still often, if not always, expect that a new discontent and restlessness will soon develop unless the individual is doing what he is fitted for. A musician must make music, an artist must paint, a poet must write, if he is to be ultimately happy. What a man can be, he must be. This need we may call self-actualization. This term, first coined by Kurt Goldstein, is being used in this paper in a much more specific and limited fashion. It refers to the desire for self-fulfillment, namely to the tendency for him to become actualized in what he is potentially. This tendency might be phrased as the desire to become more and more what one is, to become everything that one is capable of becoming. The specific form that these needs will take will of course vary greatly from person to person. In one individual it may take the form of the desire to be an ideal mother, in another it may be expressed athletically, and in still another it may be expressed in painting pictures or in inventions. It is not necessarily a creative urge, although in people who have any capacities for creation, it will take this form. The clear emergence of these needs rests upon prior satisfaction of the physiological, safety, love, and esteem needs. We shall call people who are satisfied in these needs basically satisfied people, and it is from these that we may expect the fullest and healthiest creativeness. Since in our society basically satisfied people are the exception, we don't know much about self-actualization, either experimentally or clinically. It remains a challenging problem for research. The Preconditions for the Basic Needs Satisfactions There are certain conditions which are immediate prerequisites for the basic needs satisfactions. Danger to these is reacted to almost as if it were a direct danger to the basic needs themselves. Such conditions as freedom to speak, freedom to do what one wishes so long as no harm is done to others, freedom to express oneself, freedom to investigate and seek for information, freedom to defend oneself, justice, fairness, honesty, orderliness in the group are examples of such preconditions for basic need satisfactions. Thwarting in these freedoms will be reacted to with a threat or emergency response. These conditions are not ends in themselves, but they are almost so since they are so closely related to the basic needs, which are apparently the only ends in themselves. These conditions are defended because without them the basic satisfactions are quite impossible, or at least very severely endangered. If we remember that the cognitive capacities, perceptual, intellectual, learning, are a set of adjustive tools which have among other functions that of satisfaction of our basic needs, then it's clear that any danger to them, any deprivation or blocking of their free use, must also be indirectly threatening to the basic needs themselves. Such a statement is a partial solution of the general problems of curiosity, the search for knowledge, truth, and wisdom, and the ever-persistent urge to solve the cosmic mysteries. We must therefore introduce another hypothesis and speak of degrees of closeness to the basic needs, for we have already pointed out that any conscious desires, partial goals, 
are more or less important as they are more or less close to the basic needs. The same statement may be made for various behavior acts. An act is psychologically important if it contributes directly to satisfaction of basic needs. The less directly it so contributes, or the weaker this contribution is, the less important this act must be conceived to be from the point of view of dynamic psychology. A similar statement may be made for the various defense or coping mechanisms. Some are very directly related to the protection or attainment of the basic needs, others are only weakly and distantly related. Indeed, if we wished, we could speak of more basic and less basic defense mechanisms and then affirm that danger to the more basic defenses is more threatening than danger to less basic defenses, always remembering that this is so only because of their relationship to the basic needs. The Desires to Know and to Understand So far, we've mentioned the cognitive needs only in passing. Acquiring knowledge and systematizing the universe have been considered as, in part, techniques for the achievement of basic safety in the world or, for the intelligent man, expressions of self-actualization. Also, freedom of inquiry and expression have been discussed as preconditions of satisfactions of the basic needs. True though these formulations may be, they do not constitute definitive answers to the question as to the motivation role of curiosity, learning, philosophizing, experimenting, etc. They are at best no more than partial answers. This question is especially difficult because we know so little about the facts. Curiosity, exploration, desire for the facts, desire to know may certainly be observed easily enough. The fact that they often are pursued even at great cost to the individual safety is an earnest of the partial character of our previous discussion. In addition, the writer must admit that though he has sufficient clinical evidence to postulate the desire to know as a very strong drive in intelligent people, no data are available for unintelligent people. It may then be largely a function of relatively high intelligence. Rather tentatively, then, and largely in the hope of stimulating discussion and research, we shall postulate a basic desire to know, to be aware of reality, to get the facts, to satisfy curiosity, or as Wertheimer phrases it, to see rather than to be blind. This postulation, however, is not enough. Even after we know, we are impelled to know more and more minutely and microscopically on the one hand, and on the other more and more extensively in the direction of world philosophy, religion, etc. The facts that we acquire, if they are isolated or atomistic, inevitably get theorized about and either analyzed or organized, or both. This process has been phrased by some as the search for meaning. We shall then postulate a desire to understand, to systematize, to organize, to analyze, to look for relations and meanings. Once these desires are accepted for discussion, we see that they too form themselves into a small hierarchy in which the desire to know is proponent over the desire to understand. All the characteristics of a hierarchy of propotency that we have described above seem to hold for this one as well. We must guard ourselves against the too easy tendency to separate these desires from the basic needs we have discussed above. In effect, to make a sharp dichotomy between cognitive and cognitive needs. The desire to know and to understand are themselves cognitive, in effect, have a striving character, and are as much personality needs as the basic needs we have already discussed.
3. Further characteristics of the basic needs. The degree of fixity of the hierarchy of basic needs. We have spoken so far as if this hierarchy were a fixed order, but actually it is not nearly as rigid as we may have implied. It is true that most of the people with whom we have worked have seemed to have these basic needs in about the order that has been indicated. However, there have been a number of exceptions. 1. There are some people in whom, for instance, self-esteem seems to be more important than love. This most common reversal in the hierarchy is usually due to the development of the notion that the person who is most likely to be loved is a strong or powerful person, one who inspires respect or fear, and who is self-confident or aggressive. Therefore, such people who lack love and seek it may try hard to put on a front of aggressive, confident behavior. But essentially, they seek high self-esteem and its behavior expressions more as a means to an end than for its own sake. They seek self-assertion for the sake of love rather than for self-esteem itself. 2. There are other apparently innately creative people in whom the drive to creativeness seems to be more important than any other counter-determinant. Their creativeness might appear not as self-actualization released by basic satisfaction, but in spite of lack of basic satisfaction. 3. In certain people, the level of aspiration may be permanently deadened or lowered. That is to say, the less prepotent goals may simply be lost and may disappear forever, so that the person who has experienced life at a very low level, in effect, chronic unemployment, may continue to be satisfied for the rest of his life if only he can get enough food. 4. The so-called psychopathic personality is another example of permanent loss of the love needs. These are people who, according to the best data available, have been starved for love in the earliest months of their lives and have simply lost forever the desire and the ability to give and to receive affection as animals lose sucking or pecking reflexes that are not exercised soon enough after birth. 5. Another cause of reversal of the hierarchy is that when a need has been satisfied for a long time, this need may be under-evaluated. People who have never experienced chronic hunger are apt to underestimate its effects and to look upon food as a rather unimportant thing. If they are dominated by a higher need, this higher need will seem to be the most important of all. It then becomes possible, and indeed does actually happen, that they may, for the sake of this higher need, put themselves into the position of being deprived in a more basic need. We may expect that after a long time deprivation of the more basic need, there will be a tendency to reevaluate both needs, so that the more prepotent need will actually become consciously prepotent for the individual who may have given it up very lightly. Thus, a man who has given up his job rather than lose his self-respect, and who then starves for six months or so, may be willing to take his job back even at the price of losing his self-respect. 6. Another partial explanation of apparent reversals is seen in the fact that we have been talking about the hierarchy of prepotency in terms of consciously felt wants or desires, rather than of behavior. Looking at behavior itself may give us the wrong impression. What we have claimed is that the person will want the more basic of two needs when deprived in both. There is no necessary implication here that he will act upon his desires. Let us say again that there are many determinants of behavior other than the needs and desires. 7. Perhaps more important than all these exceptions are the ones that involve ideals, high social standards, 
high values and alike. With such values, people become martyrs. They will give up everything for the sake of a particular ideal or value. These people may be understood at least in part by reference to one basic concept or hypothesis which may be called increased frustration, tolerance, through early gratification. People who have been satisfied in their basic needs throughout their lives, particularly in their earlier years, seem to develop exceptional power to withstand present or future thwarting of these needs simply because they have strong, healthy character structure as a result of basic satisfaction. They are the strong people who can easily weather disagreement or opposition, who can swim against the stream of public opinion, and who can stand up for the truth at great personal cost. It is just the ones who have loved and been well-loved and who have had many deep friendships who can hold out against hatred, rejection, or persecution. I say all this in spite of the fact that there is a certain amount of sheer habituation which is also involved in any full discussion of frustration tolerance. For instance, it's likely that those persons who have been accustomed to relative starvation for a long time are partially enabled thereby to withstand food deprivation. What sort of balance must be made between these two tendencies of habituation on the one hand and of past satisfaction breeding present frustration tolerance on the other hand remains to be worked out by further research. Meanwhile, we may assume that they are both operative side by side since they do not contradict each other. In respect to this phenomenon of increased frustration tolerance, it seems probable that the most important gratifications come in the first two years of life. That is to say, people who have been made secure and strong in the earliest years tend to remain secure and strong thereafter in the face of whatever threatens. Degrees of Relative Satisfaction So far, our theoretical discussion may have given the impression that these five sets of needs are somehow in a stepwise, all-or-none relationships to each other. We have spoken in such terms as the following. If one need is satisfied, then another emerges. This statement might give the false impression that a need must be satisfied 100% before the next need emerge. In actual fact, most members of our society, who are normal, are partially satisfied in all their basic needs and partially unsatisfied in all their basic needs at the same time. A more realistic description of the hierarchy would be in terms of decreasing percentages of satisfaction as we go up the hierarchy of propotency. For instance, if I may assign arbitrary figures for the sake of illustration, it is as if the average citizen is satisfied perhaps 85% in his physiological needs, 70% in his safety needs, 50% in his love needs, 40% in his self-esteem needs, and 10% in his self-actualization needs. As for the concept of emergence of a new need after satisfaction of the preponent need, this emergence is not a sudden, saltatory phenomenon, but rather a gradual emergence by slow degrees from nothingness. For instance, if prepotent need A is satisfied only 10%, then need B may not be visible at all. However, as this need A becomes satisfied 25%, Need B may emerge 5%, as need A becomes satisfied 75%, need B may emerge 90%, and so on. Unconscious Character of Needs These needs are neither necessarily conscious nor unconscious. On the whole, however, in the average person, they are more often unconscious rather than conscious. It is not necessary at this point to overhaul the tremendous mass of evidence which indicates the crucial importance of unconscious motivation. 
It would by now be expected on a priori grounds alone that unconscious motivations would on the whole be rather more important than the conscious motivations. What we have called the basic needs are very often largely unconscious, although they may, with suitable techniques and with sophisticated people, become conscious. Cultural Specificity and Generality of Needs This classification of basic needs makes some attempt to take account of the relative unity behind these superficial differences in specific desires from one culture to another. Certainly in any particular culture, an individual's conscious motivational content will usually be extremely different from the conscious motivational content of an individual in another society. However, it is the most common experience of anthropologists that people, even in different societies, are much more alike than we would think from our first contact with them, and that as we know them better, we seem to find more and more of this commonness. We then recognize the most startling differences to be superficial rather than basic. Example given, differences in style of hairdress, clothes, tastes in food, etc. Our classification of basic needs is in part an attempt to account for this unity behind the apparent diversity from culture to culture. No claim is made that it is ultimate or universal for all cultures. The claim is made only that it is relatively more ultimate, more universal, more basic than the superficial conscious desires from culture to culture and makes a somewhat closer approach to common human characteristics. Basic needs are more common human than superficial desires or behaviors. Multiple Motivations of Behavior These needs must be understood not to be exclusive or single determiners of certain kinds of behavior. An example may be found in any behavior that seems to be physiologically motivated, such as eating or sexual play or the like. The clinical psychologists have long since found that any behavior may be a channel through which flow various determinants. Or to say it in another way, most behavior is multi-motivated. Within the sphere of motivational determinants, any behavior tends to be determined by several or all of the basic needs simultaneously rather than by only one of them. The latter would be more an exception than the former. Eating may be partially for the sake of filling the stomach and partially for the sake of comfort and amelioration of other needs. One may make love not only for pure sexual release, but also to convince oneself of one's masculinity, or to make a conquest, to feel powerful, or to win more basic affection. As an illustration, I may point out that it would be possible, theoretically if not practically, to analyze a single act of an individual and see in it the expression of his physiological needs, his safety needs, his love needs, his esteem needs, and self-actualization. This contrasts sharply with the more naive brand of trait psychology in which one trait or one motive accounts for a certain kind of act. In effect, an aggressive act is traced solely to a trait of aggressiveness. Multiple Determinants of Behavior Not all behavior is determined by the basic needs. We might even say that not all behavior is motivated. There are many determinants of behavior other than motives. For instance, one other important class of determinants is the so-called field determinants. Theoretically at least, behavior may be determined completely by the field or even by specific isolated external stimuli as an association of ideas or certain conditioned reflexes. If in response to the stimulus word table, I immediately perceive a memory image of a table 
This response certainly has nothing to do with my basic needs. Secondly, we may call attention again to the concept of degree of closeness to the basic needs or degree of motivation. Some behavior is highly motivated, other behavior is only weakly motivated. Some is not motivated at all, but all behavior is determined. Another important point is that there is a basic difference between expressive behavior and coping behavior, functional striving, purposive goal-seeking. An expressive behavior does not try to do anything. It is simply a reflection of the personality. A stupid man behaves stupidly, not because he wants to or tries to or is motivated to, but simply because he is what he is. The same is true when I speak in a bass voice rather than tenor or soprano. The random movements of a healthy child, the smile on the face of a happy man even when he is alone, the springiness of the healthy man's walk, and the erectness of his carriage are other examples of expressive, non-functional behavior. Also, the style in which a man carries out almost all his behavior, motivated as well as unmotivated, is often expressive. We may then ask, is all behavior expressive or reflective of the character structure? The answer is no. Rote, habitual, automatized, or conventional behavior may or may not be expressive. The same is true for most stimulus-bound behaviors. It is finally necessary to stress that expressiveness of behavior and goal-directedness of behavior are not mutually exclusive categories. Average behavior is usually both. Goals as centering principle in motivation theory. It will be observed that the basic principle in our classification has been neither the instigation nor the motivated behavior, but rather the functions, effects, purposes, or goals of the behavior. It has been proven sufficiently by various people that this is the most suitable point for centering in any motivation theory. Animal and Human Centering This theory starts with a human being rather than any lower and presumably simpler animal. Too many of the findings that have been made in animals have been proven to be true for animals, but not for the human being. There is no reason whatsoever why we should start with animals in order to study human motivation. The logic, or rather illogic, behind this general fallacy of pseudo-simplicity has been exposed often enough by philosophers and logicians, as well as by scientists in each of the various fields. It's no more necessary to study animals before one can study man than it is to study mathematics before one can study geology or psychology or biology. We may also reject the old, naive behaviorism which assumed that it was somehow necessary or at least more scientific to judge human beings by animal standards. One consequence of this belief was that the whole notion of purpose and goal was excluded from motivational psychology simply because one could not ask a white rat about his purposes. Tolman has long since proven in animal studies themselves that this exclusion was not necessary. Motivation and the Theory of Psychopathogenesis The conscious motivational content of everyday life has, according to the foregoing, been conceived to be relatively important or unimportant accordingly as it is more or less closely related to the basic goals. A desire for an ice cream cone might actually be an indirect expression of a desire for love. If it is, then this desire for the ice cream cone becomes extremely important motivation. If, however, the ice cream is simply something to cool the mouth with or a casual appetitive reaction, then the desire is relatively unimportant. 
Everyday conscious desires are to be regarded as symptoms, as surface indicators, of more basic needs. If we were to take these superficial desires at their face value, we would find ourselves in a state of complete confusion which could never be resolved, since we would be dealing seriously with symptoms rather than with what lay behind the symptoms. Thwarting of unimportant desires produces no psychopathological results. Thwarting of a basically important need does produce such results. Any theory of psychopathogenesis must then be based on a sound theory of motivation. A conflict or a frustration is not necessarily pathogenic. It becomes so only when it threatens or thwarts the basic needs or partial needs that are closely related to the basic needs. The Role of Gratified Needs It has been pointed out above several times that our needs usually emerge only when more prepotent needs have been gratified. Thus, gratification has an important role in motivation theory. Apart from this, however, needs cease to play an active determining or organizing role as soon as they are gratified. What this means is that, example given, a basically satisfied person no longer has the needs for esteem, love, safety, etc. The only sense in which he might be said to have them is in the almost metaphysical sense that a sated man has hunger or a filled bottle has emptiness. If we are interested in what actually motivates us and not in what has, will, or might motivate us, then a satisfied need is not a motivator. It must be considered for all practical purposes, simply not to exist, to have disappeared. This point should be emphasized because it has been either overlooked or contradicted in every theory of motivation I know. The perfectly healthy, normal, fortunate man has no sex needs or hunger needs or needs for safety or for love or for prestige or self-esteem except in stray moments of quickly passing threat. If we were to say otherwise, we should also have to aver that every man had all the pathological reflexes, example given, Babinski, etc., because if his nervous system were damaged, these would appear. It is such considerations as these that suggest the bold postulation that a man who is thwarted in any of his basic needs may fairly be envisaged simply as a sick man. This is a fair parallel to our designation as sick of the man who lacks vitamins or minerals. Who is to say that a lack of love is less important than a lack of vitamins? Since we know the pathogenic effects of love starvation, who is to say that we are invoking value? questions, in an unscientific or illegitimate way, any more than the physician does who diagnoses and treats pellagra or scurvy. If I were permitted this usage, I should then say simply that a healthy man is primarily motivated by his needs to develop and actualize his fullest potentialities and capacities. If a man has any other basic needs in any active, chronic sense, then he is simply an unhealthy man. He is as surely sick as if he had suddenly developed a strong salt hunger or calcium hunger. If this statement seems unusual or paradoxical, the reader may be assured that this is only one among many such paradoxes that will appear as we revise our ways of looking at man's deeper motivations. When we ask what man wants of life, we deal with his very essence. Four, Summary 1. There are at least five sets of goals which we may call basic needs. These are briefly physiological, safety, love, esteem, and self-actualization. In addition, we are motivated by the desire to achieve or maintain the various conditions upon which these basic satisfactions rest and by certain more intellectual desires. 2. 
These basic goals are related to each other being arranged in a hierarchy of prepotency. This means that the most prepotent goal will monopolize consciousness and will tend of itself to organize the recruitment of the various capacities of the organism. The less prepotent needs are minimized, even forgotten or denied. But when a need is fairly well satisfied, the next prepotent, higher need emerges, in turn, to dominate the conscious life and to serve as the center of organization of behavior, since gratified needs are not active motivators. Thus, man is a perpetually wanting animal. Ordinarily, the satisfaction of these wants is not altogether mutually exclusive, but only tends to be. The average member of our society is most often partially satisfied and partially unsatisfied in all of his wants. The hierarchy principle is usually empirically observed in terms of increasing percentages of non-satisfaction as we go up the hierarchy. Reversals of the average order of the hierarchy are sometimes observed. Also, it has been observed that an individual may permanently lose the higher wants in the hierarchy under special conditions. There are not only ordinarily multiple motivations for usual behavior, but in addition many determinants other than motives. 3. Any thwarting or possibility of thwarting of these basic human goals or danger to the defenses which protect them or to the conditions upon which they rest is considered to be a psychological threat. With a few exceptions, all psychopathology may be partially traced to such threats. A basically thwarted man may actually be defined as a sick man if we wish. A basically thwarted man may actually be defined as a sick man if we wish. 4. It is such basic threats which bring about the general emergency reactions. 5. Certain other basic problems have not been dealt with because of limitations of space. Among these are a. The problem of values in any definitive motivation theory. b. The relation between appetites, desires, needs, and what is good for the organism c. The etiology of the basic needs and their possible derivation in early childhood d. Redefinition of motivational concepts, in effect, drive, desire, wish, need, goal e. Implication of our theory for hedonistic theory f. The nature of the uncompleted act or success and failure and of aspiration level g. The role of association, habit, and conditioning h. Relation to the theory of interpersonal relations I. Implications for psychotherapy J. Implication for theory of society K. The theory of selfishness L. The relation between needs and cultural patterns M. The relation between this theory and Allport's theory of functional autonomy These, as well as certain other less important questions, must be considered as motivation theory attempts to become definitive.